Nancy drew the clay in the antique drum. Chapter 5 Found and Lost. Let's take a look, Nancy told George in a low voice. If we find yellow paint on that trunk, we'll know for sure that it's the one that was stolen from Beaver. You mean the paint? We show from where the meet the new paint in the doorway? George asked. Nancy nodded and took a step toward the trunk. In the next instant, however, she was jostled to the side as Ross swept past her. Beefy, let go of that! Ross scolded, scooping up the little dog and prying the quilt from Beefy's mouth. Then she grimaced, holding a corner of the cloth between her thumb and forefingers as if it was some sort of slimy rag. What is this old pain doing here? She asked disdainfully. Rose's gaze fell on the black trunk and Nancy saw her face freeze for a second. Then just as quickly, Ross turned toward Nancy and George and began hustling them away from the trunk. It's a lovely quilt, Ross, Nancy commented, trying to resist the woman's instinct. I love to take a closer look at it. She peered back over her shoulder at the trunk, trying to see if there were any signs of yellow paint. But Ross assured her and the George firmly back into the office. I'm sorry, girls, but I have to get back to work now, she said. Nancy thought she detected a slight note of nervousness in the developer's voice. Perhaps another time. So Nancy and George knew what was happening. Ross had led them to the front door of the office and assured them outside. Good day, ladies, he said, closing the door behind them. Nancy watched through the window as Ross stormed through the doorway to her private office and disappeared inside. We were so close, George said, stamping her foot in frustration. I bet anything that was the trunk for me, Ross. Nancy hurried to the side of the real estate officer in office in time to see Ross's assistant close the garage door. Apparently, the delivery men had just finished unloading the furniture. They were climbing into the front of their truck and starting the engine. Nancy let out a discouraged sigh. She, George, she and George would have to wait for another time to get a closer look at the trunk. There's something I didn't understand, Nancy said, going back to George. Rose seemed as surprised as we were when she saw that trunk. I mean, if she knew about it, why would she let us go out to the garage in the first place? George shrugged. Maybe she figured it was hidden way enough behind the case, she suggested. If Fifi hadn't drawn our attention to it, we probably wouldn't have seen trunk. I bet Rose was just pretending to act surprised to throw it off. I guess you're right, Nancy said, pulling the keys to Vera's van from her purse. 
Anyway, there's nothing more we can do here now. We might as well head back to Vera's. Bess, hurry up, George called. We don't want to be late for the maple ball. Especially since I promised Vera we'd, we'd be on the lookout for any trouble, Nancy added. We won't even be able to spot much of anything if we're not even there. The two girls were waiting in the front hall of Vera's house, wearing jeans, scarves, gloves and heavy sweaters. Right after lunch, Vera and Julie had driven over the farm, driven over to the farm where the demonstration would take place. Vera had left Nancy directions to take to the maple to the to take the mini to walk to the maple farm, saying that it would be a pleasant one. Nancy could hear doors and drawers banging upstairs in their room. Soon Bess raced down the stairs pulling on her parka hat and gloves as she went. Sorry, sorry, she said breathlessly. I got so caught up with my reading that I forgot about making maple syrup this afternoon. George shot her cousin a look of total disbelief. You forgot about tasting one of the yummiest things in the world? I don't think any book could be that good, Nancy teased as the girls left the house, locking the door behind them. Me neither, but I guess I was wrong, Bess said. You guys should get a look at Zach Calder's diary. You wouldn't believe how juicy it's getting. I mean, at first it was kind of boring, you know, mostly just the log of the factory's expenses, how much cutlery was produced every day, stuff like that. One thing comes through loud and clear, the old sack was very cheap. He wrote himself tons of reminders to watch over his phone and, and the workers to make sure they weren't stealing from him. Maybe he had a good reason to be careful, Nancy said. After all, he was murdered. Oh, don't remind me, Bess said with a shiver. Anyway, she went on excitedly. Now Zach is starting to write my personal stuff. He's being wooed by a mystery woman. Someone left flowers in his car at the factory last night along with an anonymous love note. George rolled her eyes. Bess, I hate to disappoint you, but Zach Old has been dead over 50 years. You're talking about this guy as if he's still alive. Bess smiled sheepishly at her friends. I guess reading his diary makes me feel as if he is. Then she shook her head. If Zach were alive though, I don't think I'd want to know him. He sounds like a real miser. The girls crossed over Main Street and their boots crunched on the snow as they started on the pedestrian walkway of the bridge over Deerfield River. About halfway across, Bess paused to lean against the safety railing. Her eyes were on the stone factory perched on the opposite bank above the falls. I'm so glad we was making the Calder Cutlery into a museum, she said. It is a beautiful building, Nancy agreed. 
The ivy over the old factory was so thick, it almost completely covered the structure. But Nancy could make out indentations where sunlight glinted on the glass windows. There were two rows of four windows each. For a moment, she enjoyed the view, letting her gaze wander over the woods that hugged the cliff on either side of the factory. Then her eyes rested on the bridge of white snowy clearing and the colorful jackets and coats of the people gathered here. There. Come on, you guys. Nancy said. They hurried the rest of the way across the bridge and entered a snowy gravel drive marked Owen's Maple Farm. Circling around a wooden farmhouse, the girls found themselves in the clearing Nancy had seen from the bridge. The day was fairly warm, but several inches of snow still covered the ground and the branches of the surrounding trees. The participants were spread out in different groups. Some were collecting sap into wooden barrels on sleighs. Others were pouring the sap into a huge cast iron pot that hung over a low fire. A handful of men and women wearing green ovens maple aprons over their sweaters seemed to be a directing seemed to be directing the various demonstrations. At one side of the clearing, a race trough roof had been filled with snow. Veera was helping a group of children pour the hot syrup into shapes that hardened into maple sugar on the snow. She had a scrapbook of old photos and the engravings of New England sugaring off gatherings that she was showing to the children. There you are! There you are! Veera said, smiling as the girls walked over to her. Julie just went back to the house to do some more computer work. She had, she had strict orders to send you three up here right away. I didn't want you missing one of the best parts of the whole craft fair. Bess said, sniffing the sweet maple scented air. I hope someone's making pancakes to put all this syrup on. Vida laughed and pointed back toward the farm house. As a matter of fact, Trisha Evans is using up a huge batch right now. As Bess and George joined a group collecting sap from the wooden taps in the sugar maple trees, Nancy scanned the area. Sunlight glinted off the snowy clearing and Nancy shaded her eyes with her gloved hands to see, to see better. So far, so good she thought as she gazed at the different groups of people. The maple boil seemed to be going smoothly. Suddenly, Nancy tensed. Out of the corner of her eye, she spotted a flash of blue and red at the edge of the clearing. Looking more closely, she recognized Mike Shane's curly dark hair above his blue jacket and red high-top sneakers. He was circling the edge of the clearing, looking furtively at Vida every couple of seconds. Even from 50 feet away, Nancy could see the angry glint in his eyes. What's he up to? She wondered, slipping across the clearing toward him. A moment later, Mike's eyes widened as they focused on Nancy. The boy broke into a run and tore off into the woods, disappearing behind a thick clump of evergreens. In a flash, Nancy was after him. Snowy branches t- slapped her 
at her face as she followed Mike's footsteps through the dense dim woods. She couldn't see him but the sounds of branches snapping up ahead told her she wasn't far behind. After about 20 yards, Nancy saw that the boy's footprints had merged with other prints in what looked like a small path. Either Mike or someone else had been on it recently. Soon the path opened out into a clearing. Nancy paused to get her bearings, her chest heaving from running. In the center of the clearing, an ivy-covered stone building rose two stories high. The building was perched right at the edge of the high river bank. It was called the Calder Cutlery Factory, Nancy realized. Mike's footprints didn't lead to the factory's wooden double doors that she would have expected. Instead, they pointed in the opposite direction, around the side of the building. As Nancy began to follow the prints, she heard a rustling noise and the squeaking of hinges. Picking up her pace, Nancy circled to the side of the factory and stopped short. Then, about halfway along the factory wall, the footprints abruptly ended. Puzzled, Nancy gazed up at the factory's outside wall. The smooth surface of ivy-covered stone didn't seem to be broken by any window or door. It was as if Mike had disappeared into thin hair. Think, Nancy told herself, frowning. There had to be a way in. Stepping closer to the wall, she brushed her gloved hands through the thick tendrils of ivy, working her way through the entire area next to the last set of footprints. About four feet above the ground, her hand caught on something metallic. Pushing the ivy aside, Nancy found a small window set into the stone, its glass thick with dust and grime. Nancy's heartbeat quickened as she pushed in the window. It gave way with the creak of its rusty hinges. A moment later, she climbed up and threw the window, dropping into a wooden floor. The sound echoed in the cavernous space. Peering around, Nancy saw that she was standing in a large room that must have been the factory's main work area. It was now empty of any equipment or workbenches, though some rusty metal bins and loose debris had been swept into one corner. Nancy didn't hear any movement. Sunlight filtered through the windows and she was able to spot some wet footprints leading across the floor. A rickety looking wooden stairway at the far end of the room led up to a wide balcony that jutted out over the main floor. A second stairway led downward from the main level in, on, into a basement. Had Mike gone up or down? The wet wood prints dried out before the stairs, so it was impossible to tell. Nancy glanced up toward the three doorways of the upper balcony, but she decided it would be better not to risk the rickety stairs unless she had to. Crossing over to the basement stairwell, Nancy gingerly tested the stop top step with her foot. It creaked but seemed solid enough. Feeling along the wall with her hands, Nancy made her way carefully down the black, shadowy stairwell. The stairs turned, finally opening out into what had once been a storage room. The three windows in the lower level provided some light. Nancy quickly saw that Mike wasn't there. Like the main level above, this room had been emptied of whatever it had once held. Only the bare shelves that lined the four walls remained. 
A loud grating noise from somewhere above her startled Nancy. As she hurried back toward the staircase, she had, she had only gone a few steps up the narrow staircase when a deepening metallic clatter rang out above her. As she stuck her head around the bend in the stairwell, Nancy's breath caught in her throat. One of the rusty metal bins she'd seen on the main level was hurtling down the staircase toward her. Nancy jumped backward, but the step gave way beneath her boot, throwing her off balance. As she toppled back toward the floor, the large metal bin clanged around the bend in the stairs. In seconds, it would come crashing down on her head. That's the end of Chapter 5, Found and Lost. Thank you for listening to Nancy Drew, The Clue in the Antique Trunk. Chapter 5, Found and Lost. Subscribe and follow my podcast wherever you get it. And send me a voice message in the description of this podcast. Thank you for listening. Bye. Hope you can listen to the next to the next chapter of this book. And also, I hope you enjoyed this book.